0: Alright. Uh, good morning. Uh, it's great to be here. Um, like Joel said, um, I'm interning this summer. It's been a great opportunity. I'm very thankful to him for that. I'm very thankful to the members of this congregation um, to be here this morning. So, it's Father's Day, and, and with that, again, I would like to wish everyone a happy, happy Father's Day. But, I recognize that every person in this room this morning has a different perspective on Father's Day. Like every holiday, today stirs up a range of emotions in people. For some, it is an exciting day. Your father lives in the area. Perhaps he even attends his church. And you have plans today to spend the rest of your day with him. Um, like Joel uh, mentioned, my father's here today along with a number of my family members from both my mom's side and dad's side. So that's pretty excellent. I think it's about 15% of the congregation. <laughs> so no, that's great. Um, so yeah, I look, I look forward to spending time with them. Or uh, Perhaps your father's not in the area, and um, you'll be giving him a call later. I trust that he'll appreciate that. However, for some of you today... Father's Day brings out a different set of emotions. It is a day of conflict. Perhaps your father recently passed away, and this is your first Father's Day without him. Perhaps your father is not a Christian, and although he is alive, you are concerned about his spiritual condition. Perhaps you are here today and, and you had an abusive father. So you have a hard time celebrating on Father's Day. Or perhaps you don't even know who your father is. You lived your entire life in the absence of a father and also might have a hard time celebrating today. Furthermore, maybe you're here today and you want to be a father, but because of complications or infertility, you cannot. You've had dreams of being a father. You've you've made plans of all the things that you would do with your son. Teach him how to throw a baseball. Teach him how to play the guitar, or drums. Help him with his homework. Take him out for ice cream. You've had dreams. You've had plans of all the things you would do with your daughter. Teach her how to play piano. Teach her how to ride a bike. uh, help her apply for her first job, take her out on daddy-daughter dates. But you are reminded today of these plans that will go unfulfilled. Do you realize this morning that this is something we all have in common? This is something we can all relate to. Now, Now, certainly not in the exact same way, but everyone has plans that go unfulfilled. Whether they are big or small, long-term or short-term, plans are a part of everyone's lives. And just as we've all made plans, so have we all seen our plans fall short. Sure, you plan to get that work done before you uh, left the office, before the weekend, and you weren't able to. You meant to mow the grass yesterday, but you never got around to it. It's probably not the end of the world. But what about when your financial circumstances don't allow you to finish your education? What happens when the next paycheck does not give you enough money to make the next payment on your house? That wasn't what you were planning. What happens when she calls off the engagement? What happens when he asks for a divorce? That's definitely not a part of your plan. Again, we've all seen our plans fall short, but but what are we to make of God's plans? Do His plans ever fall short like ours do? Do God's plans ever fail? Now, I know you know the answer to that question this morning. I'm not trying to pull a fast one on anyone. But surely you've asked that question before. Surely you've wondered what God was doing at some point in your life. Our text for this morning is from the book of Genesis, chapter 17. No doubt um, this is a familiar story to many of us. Um, We will look at this story today because we see that, like all of us, Abram wondered the same thing. Do God's plans ever fail? Now, before we dive into chapter 17, I would like to give some important background information from the preceding chapters. In Genesis 12, we see that God had a plan in mind for Abram. In fact, God had three specific promises for Abram. The promise of offspring, the promise of land, and the promise that all nations would be blessed through him. However, it's no secret that when Abram didn't see God's plans progressing the way he thought they would, his faith wavered. Can't the same be said of of your life? In chapter 15, while he was still without child, he offered his own solution to the problem. What about my servant, Eleazar of Damascus? Will he be my heir? Will he be the one to inherit the land? But God silenced Abram. And affirmed that he had a bigger plan. Then a few years later, in chapter 16, still without child, and, and again feeling as though God's plan was not progressing, Abram's impatient and barren wife Sarai offers her solution to the problem. Why doesn't he sleep with Hagar, the maidservant? Certainly she could bear a son for Abram. And sure enough, he does. And she bears Ishmael. But things got messy. The household was filled with strife. Sarai was furious. And she immediately regretted the decision. You see, when things weren't going Abram and Sarai's way, they thought they could take a shortcut in God's plan. But now they realized that they had been disobedient. And their plan had failed in the end, Abram did have a son, but was this the offspring that God had promised? H- had Abram and Sarai ruins, ruined God's plan? Did God's plan fail? Our story picks up 13 years later in chapter 17. So if you have your Bibles with you today, um, please open to Genesis 17. In the Pew Bibles, I believe that's page 14. 14. And I will be reading from the NIV. In Genesis 17, verse 1, Abram receives a visit from God. Now, this is not your normal everyday encounter. Uh, This is what's known as a theophany. That is a visible manifestation of the Lord. And he's not just dropping in for a visit. He's here to do business. Time to talk about his plans. The Lord says, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Now Moses, the the author of Genesis, is very specific about the name that he uses for God in this text. God Almighty, from the phrase El Shaddai, meaning the all-powerful one, the one who is in control of everything, the one who holds all things in his hands. And this is significant in light of what's to follow. You see, the use of El Shaddai affirms the sovereignty of God and is indicative of the initiation of the fulfillment of his plans rather than the initiation of some sort of agreement. You see, because God had not established a workspace covenant with Abram, he established an unconditional covenant, a plan that he would fulfill regardless of what anyone had to say about it, regardless of the response of the people who he made it with. So when God tells Abram to walk before him and be blameless, this is not a set of conditions for Abram to meet. Rather, this language is used as an expression of a faithful servant to his king, And in verse 3, Abram responds rightly to God. He falls flat on his face in awe before the Lord. This, uh, this response can be contrasted with earlier reactions that Abram had when he received covenantal promises. He is prostrate in awe as opposed to complaining. This shows that Abram is maturing. Now that God has established that he means business and Abram has responded appropriately, God uh, God moves forward with his speech in verse 4. As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. And and to further underline the importance of this statement, God uh, tells Abram that, verse 5, no longer will you be called Abram, Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. Name change is significant in the Old Testament. It it initiates a new reality, a new status before God. Something different is taking place. And this name change um, also represents a statement of blessing and destiny. With this name change, we see God's plan beginning to unfold further. God then restates two more promises, starting in verse 6. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Now, it's interesting to note that God is not saying anything new in this set of promises, but but rather reaffirming earlier promises he made to Abraham. With each successive visit from God in Abraham's life, he has revealed a little bit more of the details of his plan. Uh, Isn't that characteristic of God? Revealing things a little bit at a time? Don't you find this to be true in your own life? Why is that? Why doesn't he come out and say it all at once? Like the rapture. Wouldn't our lives be much easier if we knew the exact time and date of the rapture? Or or when you are to be married, or what job you are to have, or if you'll be changing jobs, or if you'll be moving states. Wouldn't it be easier if we just knew all this stuff from birth? Well, I can only speculate, as the text does not address this specifically, but I tend to think that part of the reason has to do with the fact that we must comprehend one matter before we can understand another. We have to experience one situation before we can experience the next. You see, life is is like a, um, a series of stepping stones. You have to get to one before you can get to the next. I mean, remember back when you were a child? Your parents didn't tell you everything you needed to know about life all at once. They didn't dump the whole truck on you when you were eight. It takes time. We need to grow. We need to mature. There are are prerequisites, so to speak. And God, in his perfect wisdom, takes his time with us, as he did with Abraham. You see, because God is not interested only in the destination, but the transformation process along the journey. It's It's like the difference between a GPS and a map printed from MapQuest or Google. So when you look over the map from Google, it tells you everything you need. It not only do you know where you're going, but it gives you every single step along the way, every little turn, every name of the road. You know exactly how to get where you're going. But with the GPS, you type in the destination, and you kind of have to trust the thing to take you there along the way. It, it doesn't. It doesn't always show you each little step. You just kind of go, and if you miss a turn, you know it tells you, uh, you know. uh go a different way. Um, But you don't know exactly every little detail. So I guess the moral of the story is uh, it's more Christian to use a GPS than Google Maps. (laughs) So, So everyone now should go buy their father's a GPS for Father's Day. You're welcome. Dad's just doing my part. Anyway, back to the text. In this set of promises, God tells Abraham... That he will bless his offspring and use them to bless others. And he will also give them the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession. See, it is appropriate that God changes Abraham's name because these promises depend on the initial promise of being the father of a multitude of nations. For if there's no father, there's no offspring. If there is no offspring, there is no one to inhabit the land. God then does something that might seem a little odd to us today. God commands Abraham and his men to be circumcised as a sign of this covenant. Starting in verse 10. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household Or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. God commanded Abraham and the males among him to be circumcised. Now, it's important to note that circumcision was not invented at this, at this moment. Circumcision had already existed in Near Eastern culture, but it was given a new meaning at this time. Uh, the closest analogy is uh, like the rainbow after the flood. You see, rainbows would have existed, but it was not until after the flood that God gave rainbows a new meaning. And the same here is true with circumcision. So what was its significance? Well, the word circumcision literally means to cut around, circum meaning around and size meaning to cut. Circumcision involved cutting away that which was unclean, cutting away that which was impure. It became a special mark for the chosen people, a symbol of purity, a sign of faith. You see, it it sealed God's promises, cutting away that which was unclean. And now, every time a man looked at his body, he was reminded. He was reminded of God's covenant. Circumcision was God saying to Abraham, "This is my plan, and I want you to remember it." Furthermore, any man who refused circumcision was, in a sense, refusing to accept God's plan. So as verse 14 tells us, there are two options here. Either you get cut in the flesh or you get cut from the people. Um, So either you get cut or you get cut. You're allowed to laugh. It's a pun. Uh, Or if you don't think it's funny, that's fine too. I didn't write it, so I'm not offended. After giving the sign of circumcision to Abraham... God has more that he wants to say about his plan. Starting in verse 15. As for Sarah, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. So just as God changed Abraham's name, he now changes the name of his wife Sarai to Sarah. However, unlike Abraham's name change, uh, Sarah's name change is, is not expanded upon. We don't know exactly what it meant. Um, the text does not tell us that her name meant a mother of a uh, multitude of nations, like Abraham's name change meant a, mother, or a father of a multitude of nations. But what's important here is not what her name means, but the fact that the name is changed. Again, this brings about a new reality. It shows that God's plans are continuing to develop. And then God further develops his plan to Abraham. Verse 16. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Wait a second. Did you catch that? Sarah will have a son? Let's, let's pause for just a moment, because I think it's easy for us to skip over this. We've all read this before. We, we all can probably tell each other what the outcome of the story is. But put yourself in Abraham's shoes for just a moment. Here is a man who was promised a son and for the past 20 some odd years had been trying to conceive with his wife, but had no success. And and if they were too old when they started, which they were in their 70s, all the more are they too old now. I I tell you what, if you head over to to Willow Valley or Landis Homes, you'll find a lot of different facilities, but a maternity ward is not one of them. And now, Sarah was 90 years old. If you find this incredible, so did Abraham. And this is how he responded in verse 17. Abraham fell face down. He laughed. He laughed. He said to himself, Will a son be born to a man 100 years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? You've got to be kidding me. Abraham laughed at God. He laughed at El Shaddai. He questioned the Almighty. And he is one of the few people, if not the only person in Scripture, to have done so and lived to tell about it. And if that isn't bad enough, he offers his own solution. Verse 18 reads, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Remember Ishmael? The son who was born to Abraham by the maidservant Hagar. You see, these past 13 years, Abraham had been under the impression that he was the promised offspring. And although God has made his plan clear to him, he's still stuck on Ishmael. Do you ever return to your own plan even when God has made his better plan clear to you? But God had the final say in this one, as He does in every situation. Verse 19. Yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael... I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of 12 rulers and I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you this time next year. God makes his plans Very clear for Abraham. He says he will have a son. He tells him what his son's name will be. He tells him who the mother will be. He tells him when he will be born. And on top of that, includes Ishmael in the plan and gives specific details about his life as well. And it's at this point that Abraham finally realizes that God's plans are perfect. They do not fail, and therefore, He can trust Him. God's plans are perfect. They do not fail, and we can trust Him. This is the plan that God had in mind from the beginning, to give Abraham a son through his wife Sarah, who would then inhabit the land and be a blessing to the nations. This is the plan that would unfold. And, and even when Abraham was uncertain of God's plan with, with the birth of Ishmael, and, and even when his household was in an uproar, God did not allow it to get in the way of His plan. In fact, God worked through Abraham and Sarah's mistakes, and accomplished His plan in spite of them. Even when Abraham doubted, even when he was disobedient, God's plan went forth. Can this same truth be said of our lives today? Do we believe in all circumstances that God's plans are perfect? Do we trust Him? What about when you open the mailbox and receive the rejection letter from the school you wanted to attend? What about when you arrive at work only to find out that you've been let go? What about when you get a call from the doctor that says you have cancer and less than three years to live? What about when a tsunami hits Japan or a tornado hits Missouri and kills innocent people? Or what about when you're standing at the funeral of a close friend or family member who passed away? No doubt we can all relate to tragedies and uncertainties. How does that fit into God's perfect plan? See, about four months ago, I lost a cousin on my mother's side in a tragic drowning accident. He was only 24 and recently started a new promising career. So I was confronted with this truth. You mean to tell me that God's plan allowing my cousin to die was better than the plan that I or he or any of my family members had for him? Yes. Absolutely yes. And I know that might sound harsh to some people that might rattle some cages this morning. But God is perfect, and His plan is perfect, and we must find comfort in that this morning. Now let me tread this water carefully. Please understand, I don't say any of this flippantly. I don't suggest that we should fail to grieve, or fail to mourn when something terrible happens. You don't go to a funeral and walk up to a family who just lost someone and say, oh, don't worry, you'll be fine, God's plan is perfect. It's not that simple. We all know that. So we don't just move on with life as if nothing happened. Furthermore, this does not give us license to say, oh, well, God's plan is perfect, so I guess I can do whatever I want because His plan will be accomplished regardless. (laughs) The Apostle Paul confronted a similar statement in the book of Romans. Some people said that they could sin as much as they want because God would forgive them anyway. But Paul said in response, should we sin that grace may abound? By no means. In the same way, should we follow our own plan even though God's plan will prevail? By no means. Let me say this, in the end, God's plan will be accomplished regardless of what anybody has to say about it, yet Scripture still commands us to align our wills with His will. At the end of the day, we may not know why certain events take place, but we know that God's plan is perfect And that, again, that is the truth we must find comfort in, knowing that God knows what He's doing, knowing that He is sovereignly orchestrating all things for His glory. He is El Shaddai, not you, not me. And we don't affirm it because we understand it. We affirm it because it's true. One of my theology professors, Dr. Zuber, said it this way, It is better to live with uncertainty, having the comfort of God's decree, than to try and find comfort at the cost of God's decree. You see, you can either live with certainty apart from God, or live with uncertainty next to God. But the sad irony of the first option is that certainty apart from God is an illusion. You deceive yourself by living that way. There is no certainty apart from God. Finally, in order to affirm that Abraham truly believed God and his plan, he, he, Ishmael, and the men of his household were circumcised. Verse 23. On that very day, Abraham took his son, Ishmael, and all those born in his household or bought with his money, every male in his household, and circumcised them, as God told him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised, and his son, Ishmael, was 13. Abraham and his son Ishmael were both circumcised on that same day. And every male in Abraham's household, including those born in his household, or bought from a foreigner, was circumcised with him. By his obedience, Abraham showed that he trusted God. You see, because faith is not an abstraction. That is, faith is not just something that we know in our heads It's not simply a cerebral exercise, so to speak. Faith is trusting God and then responding in obedience. And just as circumcision cannot be undone, God's plan and his covenant cannot be undone. That is the conclusion of Genesis 17, but but that is not the conclusion of the entire story. You see, as as Scripture tells us, and again, as many of you know, God's plan to bring forth a son and bless the nations began with Abraham, but it did not end with Isaac. It was fulfilled generations later through Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate offspring of Abraham. Amen? And surely... Surely, if God can bring such great news through a situation that at its darkest moment seemed like complete tragedy, so surely can He bring good news through whatever situation you might find yourself in today. That is the Gospel. To conclude, I'd like to give us uh, three points of application, each reflecting the three responses that Abraham had in this section of scripture. So when God initially spoke to Abraham, Abraham responded rightly by falling on his face before him. So, number one, we must find ourselves on our faces before the Lord. So what does that look like? Sure, God may not be showing up at your front door in a theophany, I get it, uh, but his voice is, is much closer than I think sometimes we realize His word is right in front of us. So we find ourselves on our faces before him by submitting to what his word has to say to us, by obeying when we are told to love our enemy, to not get drunk, to to not be sexually immoral, and by trusting that he is in control of every circumstance. When God told Abraham that he was going to have a son through Sarah, he laughed. This is the one where you are to do the opposite of what Abraham did. So, number two, we must not laugh when God makes his plan clear to us. If you're like me, you know that just because you're a believer doesn't mean you're always believing God in in every situation. Again, when Abraham laughed at God, it wasn't because he didn't believe God at all about anything. He just lacked faith in the specifics at that moment. So when God calls you to be a missionary, or or tells you to change jobs, or tells you to move to a different state, and says that He will provide all that you need, trust Him. Don't laugh. Don't be cynical. Trust that He will take care of it on His timing. Finally, God told Abraham and his men to be circumcised as a sign of the covenant. And just as Abraham's faith was made evident by his obedience to be circumcised, so, number three, our faith is made evident by our obedience, by the way that we live our lives on a daily basis. And just a quick side note, circumcision is not the sign of our covenant. That was a specific sign for a specific people. What is significant here is obedience. We are to respond in obedience to God and His Word. You cannot separate faith from obedience. Again, as I mentioned earlier, it's not just a cerebral exercise. It starts here, yeah. But that's not where it ends. You cannot say, I trust God, and then turn and live in a way totally contrary. As fallen human beings, our default setting is to trust ourselves, to trust our own plans, to trust what we think we know, to think that we have it all figured out. But who are we before a holy, righteous, sovereign, and perfect God? So my challenge to you today... is to trust Christ. To trust that His plan is perfect. Are you submitting to His plan today? Or do you continue to work on your own? Let's close in prayer. Father God, I just, um, again, thank You for this opportunity this morning. God, I pray that um, the words that have come from my mouth this morning, have been from you. God, that your truth would uh, continue to challenge us, convict us. Lord, that you would continue to teach us and discipline us. Lord, you are good, and we are not, and we are at your mercy.